Hey, this is David Merrill, pastor of the Well Church. I would like to first thank you for downloading the app and listening to what God is doing through the life and ministry of the Well Church. I would also ask that before you listen to this message, that you would pray that God not only continues to transform lives through this ministry, but also that as you hear the Word of God proclaimed, pray that the Holy Spirit will convict you in areas that your life has not been given over to God, empower you to repent and turn, but also embolden you to be doers of the Word and not simply hearers, in order that you become a light in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, and even in your local church body. Let us be radically in love with Jesus and radically in love with his people. Once again, I just thank you for listening, and may God bless you abundantly. All right. Once again, good morning and happy Easter. The Lord is risen. That's where y'all say he is risen indeed. All right. So let's... uh, you know what, I want to pray just one more time. Um, yeah, I don't got any announcements, all right? I'm sure there are announcements. I just, I'm not thinking of them right now. So let's just go ahead and pray and jump in to um, our sermon and what we're talking about this morning. And happy Easter is the greatest day ever. Father, we thank you. Jesus, we praise you. Our Messiah, Jesus. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for what you have done for us. And Lord, I pray that this never becomes common to us. This never becomes common. This never becomes something that we just go through and say every year we celebrate this day and we have the same gold sermon and we just, it becomes normal to us. But Lord, I pray that it's new every day, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you resurrect our spirits this morning. Resurrect our spirits to your truth, to what you have to say, to your gospel, to your message. Father, we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, once again, we are celebrating the greatest day in the history of the world. All right? Uh, the, the greatest day, the most documented day, the most um, celebrated day in the history of the world is not only Jesus died and resurrected from the grave, and he not only took the penalty of your sin, which means that you stand before God just, you stand before God holy in the righteousness, the imputed righteousness of God, but it also, what it means is that he took the power of sin and death. That's the part we miss, that he took the power of sin and death, which means that not only are you forgiven, but you ha- the, the sin has no authority over your life. But he took the power of, of anger that, that no longer has a grip on you. He took the power of anxiety. He took the power of lust. He took the power of fear. He took the power of pride, of addiction, of death. The resurrection declares to the world that Jesus has won the victory. And so not only is his death and resurrection beautiful and amazing because of that, but here's the thing. The the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is powerful and amazing because what it is is a declaration to the fact that God keeps his promises. Okay, that is exactly, see, remember we talked about this. We've been talking about this. You've been with us that Jesus is not something new, all right? Jesus is not coming on the scenes and just um, this new religion, this new thing that he's trying to start. Jesus is the fulfillment of 
over 300 promises of God. Over 300. Peter Stoner, he's a mathematician, he said that for one person to fulfill eight prophecies, eight promises, one person to fulfill eight, okay, it would be one to the 10th to the uh, 17th power. Okay, that's one with 17 zeros after it. Okay, one person, eight prophecies. He, 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 he anteed it up. He said 48 prophecies would be one to the 10th to the 157th power. Just 48. One with 157 zeros after it. All right, Jesus fulfilled over three hundred promises of God. Now, is this a coincidence? Is this one of those, oh, maybe just all, all these things just happen. It's just by accident. You know, it just happened that you, no. Jesus actually is the answer, the fulfillment to the promises of God. And see, that's what exactly what we're talking about this morning. You know, we're going through the book of Romans, and, and it's so cool how God works because we get to Romans 11, and it's perfect with what we're talking about, how God keeps his promises. Because one of the biggest questions that Paul's asking is, is, has God, is God done with Israel? And that's really where he's asking in Romans 11. He's asking that in Romans 1, 11, 1 and 11, 11. He's saying, is God done with Israel? Has God, has Israel been cast off? Have they fallen to the point of being utterly destroyed? And the answer to this question is so significant. But the, the, the thing is, is a lot of people are probably thinking right now, this is Easter. What in the world does Israel have to do with me? And what does it have to do with Easter? Like, I just, I want to hear a message about me, okay? So I came, I want to hear this nice Easter message, talk about the resurrection, talk about, you know, how Jesus raised, you know, dance, monkey, dance, okay? To teach me something that I want to hear. But hear me, guys. Jesus, the, the, is God done with Israel? That question, the answer to that question has everything to do with you, your life, your walk, your faith with Easter. Because if God is done with Israel, then you cannot trust in any promises of God. You cannot trust in that God will not leave you or forsake. You can't trust that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Because might, you might be saved, maybe, or he will never leave you or forsake you, maybe. That he has a plan for you and that he who began a good work in you will complete it? Maybe. You know, Jesus will return one day. I don't know. See, guys, if God is done with Israel, then we should turn this off. Go pull out your frozen pizza. Pull out your wine and celebrate the fact that a bunny has pooped eggs in your yard. Okay? That's the crux of it. If God is done, is the answer to the, is God done with Israel? Yes, then we are done. But if it's no, then he is fulfilling his promises. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Jeremiah 31, verse 35. It says this. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and a fixed, uh, fixed order of the moon and the stars by light by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched search out below, then I will also cast off all my offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. God says, look, 
I have created heavens and earth. I have declared that the sun shine every day. So you wake up in the morning and the sun's going to rise. You go to bed at night. The moon's going to be there. The stars are going to be there. You go to the beach and there's waves, okay? Okay, so here's the thing. If you wake up tomorrow morning and the sun doesn't rise, then you can know that God is done with Israel. But as long as you wake up and the sun is there, the go to sleep and the stars and moon are there, then God is not done with the nation of Israel. See, most of us know this, but the Jewish people, they missed the Messiah because they were holding on to promises of God while neglecting the other ones, okay? They neglected the fact that Jesus was going to come as a suffering servant. They neglected that he was going to be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. They missed the part that he was going to be born of a virgin. They missed these aspects of the Messiah, the promises in the Old Testament, and they grappled onto, they held onto the ones where Israel will be restored again. Israel will become the nation on the hill. Israel, the Messiah is going to come and bring a, be a conqueror. They were holding on promises of God, but they missed the first coming. We know that those promises are the second coming. But here's the problem. Most Christians, we hold on to the suffering servant part because it's, he's already fulfilled it. Jesus already fulfilled that. And we tend to neglect the second. We tend to neglect the latter of the other promises of God concerning Israel and the Messiah. Promises like Isaiah chapter 2 where it says, The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Now, what mountain is he talking about? Mount Zion, the mountain on Jerusalem, the mountain where the temple was and it will be again. Now he goes on, he says, and many people will come to me and say, or come to say, come, let us go up on the mountain of the Lord to the host of, the, of God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his path. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nations and he will render decisions for my peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. So he's saying they're gonna get rid of all their weapons and take them down to tools to garden with. Why? Because in this time, in the millennial kingdom, there will be no war. And that's what it says. It says that nations will not lift a sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Let me ask you this. When has that happened? Like, when has this happened in the nation of Israel? Like, was it under David or Solomon? First of all, it wasn't. But even if it was, this is a prophecy after David and after Solomon. Has already, they're already gone. This is Isaiah. Or what about in Ezekiel when it says to them, uh, thus says the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 37. Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own lands. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel. And one king will be their king over all of them. And they will no longer be two nations, no longer Israel and Judah. But they will be no longer divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. 
and they will be my people. I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have all, they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances to keep my statues and observe them. They will live in the land of, that I gave Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, a lot of people will say, well, well, that's talking about the church, right? That's talking about the church. It's not talking about Israel anymore. It's a spiritual church, a spiritual Israel. But what does it say? The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies who? Israel. When my sanctuary is in their midst forever. See, the, the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. Now this is, there are many verses in the Old Testament that talk about the Gentiles being grafted in, the other nations being grafted in, the blessing. Israel is a blessing to the nations. This is not talking about the other nations. This is talking about the people of Israel. What about when Jesus says, when he's talking about the destruction of the temple? He's talking about the destruction of the temple and that in 70 AD there, there's going to be a destruction. And he says this, he says, and, and they, let, um, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. So this is the fall of destruction, but then he goes on. This will happen until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So there's gonna be destruction of Israel, the, uh, the temple that's happened in 70 AD, but this, they will be ruled by Gentile nations until the time of the Gentiles is done. What happens when the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles is done? Is Jerusalem just abandoned? No. We see the fulfillment. What about when Jesus is going off into heaven after his resurrection and his disciples, they ask him, they say, Lord, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? So the disciples knew there's going to be a period when Israel's restored and the Messiah comes and everything is restored back to normal where they are the mountain on the hill, the Zion, the mountain of Zion. They are the nation that all nations come to. They ask Jesus, is this the time? And what does Jesus say? You idiots. Like you're dumb. Like you're still talking about Israel. We're the church now, okay? We're, we're in the church season. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says this. He says, look, it is not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He says, man, it's just not, you don't, it's not for you to know. It's going to happen. You just don't know when. So here's the thing. We see here that God has promises to Israel that are uncircumstantial. They are, un, they are going to happen. Promises with the nation of Israel. So in order for us to be able to rest on the promises of God, we have to stand that is God done with Israel? We have to believe that no, he's not. So let's jump into Romans 1. Now, as we jump into Romans 1, 11, verse 1, we gotta understand this. Now, what Paul is doing We've got to understand this breakup because there is a breakup between three different groups. There's Israel as a nation. There's the Gentiles as Gentile nations. And then there's the church. The church is filled with Jews and Greeks alike in the church. Now, 
they all have their part to play in God's overarching plan. But a lot of times when we read Romans, especially, especially 9, 10, and 11, we often read individually into it, but that's not what Paul's doing. He's talking nationally, the nation of Israel, the nation of the Gentiles, and the church. So we can't go too much of individualistic as we read into it. It's, it's nationally, and that's going to make a lot more sense as we read what Paul is saying. So Romans 1, or 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. So once again, the question is, has God, is God done with Israel? And Paul immediately answers, never. It's not done. He's not done. It's a temporary hardening, but it's also a partial hardening, which means there's a remnant. And he says, there's evidence of this by my own testimony. He says, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. So you want to know how I know that God's not done with Israel, Paul says? Because I'm an Israelite. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. And see, what's interesting about Paul's conversion is that the way Paul was converted, I believe, is a, is a foreshadowing of the way that God is going to restore Israel. Because Paul was hardened to the gospel. He was a persecutor of the church. He was hardened to the Jewish Messiah. He was hardened to him. And what does God do? He blinded Paul. He blinded Paul. He, he covered his eyes so he could not see for three days. And then eventually, God unblinded Saul, and Saul became Paul to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, to become an apostle of the God. So I really believe that what God did with Paul is a foreshadowing of what he's going to do with the nation of Israel. And we're going to see that later on. But he's going to, and there's going to be a time where God removes the scales, removes the, the blindness off of Israel so they can once again come to their Messiah. So Paul says, I'm an Israelite. I know God's not done with me. But he also goes on. He says, God has not rejected his people. In verse 2, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scriptures say in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars. And I alone am left. They are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, in the same way, there has also come to this present time a remnant according to God's gracious, cho gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer by the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And so Paul moves on from his own testimony to say, okay, now let's look at history. Remember Elijah. Now, we all know the story of Elijah. Elijah lived during the time of King Ahab, okay? Um, King Ahab, he was married to who? Jezebel, right? Wicked, wicked woman. You don't name your daughter Jezebel, okay? Just like you don't name your son Judas. It just doesn't work. Jezebel was a wicked person. Now, she brought in all these different prophets and, and priests of Baal into Israel. And they set up temples. And in Samaria, this was the holy city at that time, Samaria, because this was the, southern, or the northern tribe of Israel. Southern tribe temple was Jerusalem. But in Samaria, she set up all kinds of temples and altars to worship Baal. And so every Israelite had to worship Baal alongside of Yahweh. And so then you have this man by the name of Elijah, the prophet. And he meets 450 of these prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And they have a gentleman's bet. They say, whoever can light the altar on fire, that, that is the one true God of Israel. The loser gets their heads cut off, okay? Now, so they have the altar. The prophets of Baal, 
They, they set the altar up, and, and God's going to light it on. Baal's going to light it on fire, and they're screaming. They're wailing. They're cutting the wrist. They're crying out, and, and Elijah's mocking them and saying, huh, where's your God now? Is he, is he using the bathroom? Is, is Baal taking a dump? It's like, where is he? And he's mocking the, the prophets of Baal, and, and then eventually nothing happens. So Elijah's turn. He sets up the altar. He pours water on it and more water on it and more water on it. So it's flooding from the altar, and, God, and Elijah doesn't cut his wrist. He doesn't slaughter his, it does scream and cry. He just stops and prays. And fire comes down from heaven. And guess what? Gentleman's bet, Elijah kills them all. Okay, and so, but after that, after he just has this Elijah mountaintop moment, he kills 450 prophets of Baal, fire from heaven. He hears that Jezebel wants vengeance, and so he runs and flees. Help, a woman's after me. And he hides in a bush. He hides down below, crying out, and that's where we pick up here, where he's like, God, everybody has turned to Baal, and I'm the only one left. All the prophets, all the, everybody has died or has turned to kneel, has kneeled down to Baal. I am the only righteous person left on the planet, God. Kill me. And God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee. I love this. Because what God is telling Elijah is, you don't know what I'm doing. You don't know what's going on. You say you're the only person left. I've kept for myself 7,000 righteous men who have not bowed their knee. And I love that because, man, especially today, guys, I don't know if you're with me on this, but so often it's so easy to look at the news, so easy to watch the state of our world and our government and even the church, to see the church walking away from the truth of the word of God and walking away from God and just kind of going into what, what Paul says, there's going to be a season where people just want to tickle their ears and hear things that just entertain them and they don't want truth anymore. And as you're watching, it's so easy to get discouraged and say, God, what are you doing? The church is walking away from you. Our world is walking away from you. The government is walking away from you. Everybody's walking away. It just seems like there's, there's no hope for the church. And then I read this, and God's like, David, you don't know what I'm doing. You don't know. Right now, as you whine in your finite little mind, right now there are Hundreds and thousands of people across America, in China, in India, in Africa, in Europe, who have not bowed their knee to progressivism, who have not bowed their knee to universalism, who have not bowed their knee to, to patriotism, who have not bowed their knee to emotionalism. There are thousands of people. My church is alive, and they are worshiping me as we speak. Guys, I, I just gave me peace and hope this morning just to think about, man, God's church is alive. He is the king. He is on his throne, and he's got a plan. And so Paul is saying, look, there's always going to be a remnant. There's a remnant of, of, of Jewish believers, and, and there is till the end. And so he moves on. He says, okay, now there's, I'm, a, I'm evidence of that. Elijah, there was evidence of that in there. So the natural question is, okay, well, what's next? Okay, what's, what's next for Israel? And so that's what he answers. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. Now, what is Israel seeking? Israel is seeking righteousness. But how did they try to obtain it? Through self-works, through self-righteousness. We talked about it last week. Self-works. But he goes on, he says, but those who were chosen obtained it, and, those, and the rest were hardened. And so there were, 
those who chose it through faith, and then the, the ones who were hardened, as we saw last week, and this and later on we're going to see, they were hardened because of their unbelief. They weren't trying to obtain it through faith. They were obtaining it through self-righteousness. And so this judicial hardening took place. Verse 8, he says, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes not to see, ears not to hear, down to the very day. This is from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. And then he goes on to quote David in Psalm 69. He says, and David says, let the table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forward. So once again, this is a judicial hardening. That because of Israel's rejection, because of their sin, because of their transgressions, God has chosen in his sovereign grace, in his sovereignty, in his sovereign mercies, he's chosen to let some, choose some to not be hardened and see and come to the, to the gospel through faith. But he also, through their transgressions, he hardened much of Israel. Okay, and we read Isaiah, it talks about, if you read the chapter that he quotes here, it's all about the sins of Israel. Because they have sinned, God has hardened them. Psalms, when he talks about, quotes David, that whole verse, because they have sinned, this is what God has done. Is that Romans 1 thing. They gave them over to their debased minds. He gave them over to themselves. But then Paul goes on. Why is God doing this? Once again, he asks the same question. I say, then, is, have they stumbled as the fall? May it never be. But their transgressions became salvation to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgressions is riches for the world and their failure is riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So once again, the, the Greek in the word, the, the fall in the Greek means to be destroyed utterly. So the question that Paul is asking now, this invisible antagonist is asking, has Israel fallen so hard that they now are just destroyed? There's no hope for Israel anymore because they've walked away, they've sinned, and Paul says no. He says God is doing something here. See, what is God doing? See, what God is doing is he's taking the hardening of Israel, the rejection. Okay, so they've rejected their Messiah, so God hardens them, not permanently, but temporarily, and not fully, but partially. There's going to be a remnant. But he hardens them. Why? Because now the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Jewish Messiah, he can now go out to the Gentiles. So if he's just a Jewish Messiah, which he came through the Jews, and if the Jews receive, Jesus, God uses their hardening to now send out the Jewish Messiah to all the world. And it says that by their rejection, the nations are blessed. By their, by their uh, sins, the transgressions, the Gentile nations are blessed. He says, how much more, though, will their fulfillment be? And we're going to talk about this in a second, but their fulfillment there's going to be a time where the nation of Israel, their hardening is removed. And this fulfillment takes place in the seven-year tribulation the millennial, leading to the millennial kingdom. They will be come back to their Messiah. But Paul says on, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and to save some of them. So Paul speaks, say, look, Here's the deal. I am a Jew, but God called me to be the Gentile apostle. Okay? I am the apostle to the Gentiles. That's my job. God called me to that. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be straight up with you. I, my goal in my ministry 
is to save as many Gentiles as I can so that I could provoke my Jewish brethren to jealousy so that maybe some of them will come to their salvation. It's like, uh, it's like a rebound chick, okay? Don't take this analogy too far, all right? But here's what happens when your girl breaks up with you or your boy breaks up with you. What happens? You, you go and lose weight, all right? You go trying to get in shape. You go on a diet and you buy new clothes and you get your hair did and everything happens and you find a new girl, okay? Now, you find a new girl. What happens now? You're all boo. She's looking at you and is like, man, I, I missed out. Like he looks happy. They look, she, he looks good and, and he's lost some weight and he's feeling, he's, he's not the same guy that I remember. He, he looks good. Now, that's where the analogy ends. Don't take it too far. Don't leave here and say, David said I'm a hookup, you know, I'm a rebound chick or I'm a booty call. I didn't say that, okay? The Gentile nations are called, they're solidified, okay? Don't, that's where the analogy ends. But the point is, is Paul saying, I am bringing in as many Gentiles as I can. Okay, as many Gentiles as I can, so that, they, that they, the Jewish people can see that the Gentiles, man, they got the Holy Spirit. They got life. They got intimacy with God. They got relationship with the Father. And then they look at that and say, man, we missed out. We missed our Messiah. I want that. I want what they have. I, I missed out. I could have had that. And that's Paul's ministry, guys. And that should, that should be the churches. Every one of us, our desires should make the world jealous. Our desire is to provoke the world to jealousy. You see, the church was supposed to be the light on the hill. You see, we live in such a way that we have the authority of God. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the love of God. We have the power of God. We have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. In the midst of chaos, you have peace. In the midst of brokenness, you have joy. And all these different things are the fruit of the Spirit. We are meant to be a light on the hill to provoke the world to where the world looks at you and say, I don't have that with, Yah, with Allah. I don't have that with Buddha. I don't have that meditating. I don't have that while I'm just sitting there watching Netflix. I don't get that from my job. I don't get that from my works. I want what you have. You see, we we're supposed to live in such a way that the world looks at the church and says, man, I want what you have because here's the truth. They need what we have. And it's crazy to me how so many Christians, their goal is to fit in. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be different. I want to fit in. I want to fit in with the people. I want to be, be liked and accepted by the people. And then I could be saved. If I, if, or then I could save some people. Like if I know what's going on in, in, in culture, pop culture, if I watch these shows, then I could fit in and be cool. And then they'll like me because they'll think I'm relative and I'm cool with them. But guys, you are walking through the valley of dry bones. And you have skin and life on you. And you're saying, I want to fit in? Like, how crazy is that? You're like, man, I'm walking through the valley of dry bones, and I'm, I feel like I'm standing out. Like, I'm the only one with skin. Okay, maybe I need to decay a little bit and, you know, ooze some stuff and show some bone. Maybe, maybe that will get the bones to relate to me and say, hey, I'm a bone like you. And that's going to get people saved. Guys, it's crazy. We were meant to live in such a way to have life to provoke the world to jealousy. And that's what Paul is saying. That's my goal. That's my mission. That's my plan is to save as many Gentiles as I can so that the Jewish believers, my brethren, will be provoked to jealousy. He goes on and he gives this analogy. He says, for if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And the first piece of dough is holy. 
the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among the, uh, and them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if, they, but if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. There's the keyword for their unbelief. But you stand by faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if, God not, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by, uh, for if you were cut off from what is natural, uh, or what is by nature, sorry, a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So Paul uses these two analogies, the, the dough and the olive tree. He spends a lot of time with the olive tree, but he starts off with this dough, and he says if the piece is holy, the whole lump is holy. Now, there used to be something called a meal offering. This comes from Leviticus. And the meal offering is they would take a piece of the bread, the dough, before they cooked it, and they would offer it to God. And that was to be the first fruits, the first offering, the first part. And so they'd offer it to God, and it'd be holy because it's sanctified to God. Then they would take, they would bake the bread, come out, it's flat because there's no leaven, and they would offer the whole thing to God. And that became the meal offering. If the lump, if the piece is holy, the whole dough is holy. But then he goes on to this tree, and he says, okay, look, this is what you are. He says, here's the thing. There was an olive tree. Okay, he, he compares Israel to an olive tree. And he says, the olive tree is supported by the root. Okay, the root system. The root system is holy. Now, what is the root system? The root system is the patriarchs of Israel. The root system is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, that's where the nation of Israel comes from, the name of Jacob, Israel. So the root system is holy, and so everything that flourishes it from it is from is being nourished by the promises, by the covenant, by the represent of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, the root system is holy. And what God has done is He's taken off people, branches of their lack of faith, because the root system is holy, because of Abraham was made righteous by his faith okay and so the root system these people because they're unbelief their lack of faith god's plucking the branches of these israelites of, of many of the jews hardening them because of their unbelief and god has taken you a wild olive tree a wild olive branch okay not even of the cultivated nice you know groomed all you just some wild weed okay and god takes you and he puts you in and he grafts you so now you are pulling from the nutrients of the root system which is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob which means you are grafted into the covenants and the promises. Did you know that you as a Gentile believer in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, that you've been rooted and grafted into the covenant promises? 
that you are pulling from the root system of the covenants and the promises and the word of God and the rich history of this nation that you are grafted into. Did you know that the, the covenant, the new covenant was a Jewish covenant? That God made the covenant that I will one day make a new covenant with you where the word of God will be implemented on your heart, that you shall be my people, I shall be your God, that you will no longer say, who is my God, where is he? Because I will be your people, your, I will be your God, you will be my people. That was to the Jewish people. Did you know that Jesus says to the woman at the well that salvation is of the Jews? Did you know that Jesus was Jewish? That may shock some of y'all. This is why it doesn't make sense to be racist as a Christian. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. There's no room for that. Jesus was Jewish. He wasn't some white guy with the blonde hair and blue eyes. Did you know that all the disciples were Jewish? Did you know that for the first 10 years, Christianity was, all, was mainly Jewish, Jewish religion? It wasn't until Paul came on the scene and became the apostle to the Gentiles that put it out, put it out to the Gentile believers. And that when you became a believer in Yeshua HaMashiach, that you were grafted into the Jewish covenants, the Jewish promises, the Jewish faith, the Jewish root system of holiness of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You were rooted into that. And Paul says, look, by God's great mercies, by God's great, great love and compassion, he did this for you. And he did this to the Gentile nations. And so what do you do? You walk in humility. You don't get conceited. You don't get puffed up. You walk in fear. You walk in humility because how easy would it be for God to take out what's unnatural and bring back in what's natural? Now, once again, he's not talking about salvation here individually. He's talking about nationality. How easy would it be to take off what's unnatural, the Gentiles, and put back in the Jews? Once again, I believe this is going to happen. There's going to come a time where God removes the veil, the hardening of Israel, and they're going to be grafted back into their tree because they're going to come to their Messiah. They're going to come to him with faith and by faith. And this is going to happen. In fact, this is what Paul says is going to happen. He says this in verse 25. He says, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of the mysteries, so that you not be wise by your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Paul says, first of all, blindness in part, okay? Partial blindness, remember remnant, but he says until, which means God's not done. Israel will have a point where they were unblinded. The hardening of hearts will be removed. But until what? The time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What are the time of the Gentiles? The time of the Gentiles is when the gospel goes out to the Gentile nations. Right now, Christianity is mainly filled with Gentiles and Gentile nations. There's a remnant of Jewish believers, the Messianic Jews, those who've come to the Messiah, a remnant, but for the most in part, Christianity is filled with the Gentile nations. But hear me, there is going to come a time when that chapter of the church is completed. See, it's, it's like this. It's like God has a God has a plan. If you look at the past and pre future promises of God, Israel was God's conduit. He was their, their people to bring his word, 
to bring his promises, to bring the Jewish Messiah, to bring the Messiah to the, the nations, to bless the nations. That was Israel's job. They did their job, but then they hardened their heart, and so God used that. He almost took Israel, put them on the shelf, and the gospel spread to the nations of all nations, the Gentiles and unbelievers, and everybody got the gospel message. This is the time, the season of the church. And so we're in the season of the church, but there will be a point where the season of the church is done. The time of the Gentiles is done. Now, whether you are a preacher, or if you're a preacher, but you believe the time of the church being done is the time when the church is raptured. If you're a post-tribber, then you believe the time of the church being done is the time where we are all, no, no one's able to worship and the church has to go underground and we're no longer be able to go witness to the, the, the Gentiles. But either way, what happens, and this is called Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. In Jeremiah, it talks about this time where Jacob will go through this season. We also know it as the seven-year tribulation. During the seven-year tribulation, what takes place is God removes his veil, removes his hand from the, uh, the heart, from is or the, the blindness from Israel, and 144,000 Jewish believers come to Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah. They come to their Savior. And it's the mass revival, or mass, the biggest revival we've ever seen in our lives of Jewish believers coming to their Messiah because the hardening has been lifted. The time of the Gentiles is over, whether they're raptured or they're in hiding. But then Israel becomes prominent again. They're back on the scene. They're back in their homeland. They have the temple. And they, that's where that peace treaty with the Antichrist and all that stuff comes in. But then when the Messiah comes back a second time, the Jewish believers are waiting for him, longing for him, and that ushers into the millennial kingdom where Jesus reigns for a thousand years and the city on the hill Mount Zion all nations come and drink from its word there's coming a time where Israel will be used again God has a plan for Israel God is not done with Israel and Paul goes on, he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now you have been shown mercy because of the disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient. That because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. Paul says, why is God not done with Israel? Why is Israel not done? Because God has promised them things that are irrevocable. Genesis chapter 17, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the generations for everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you and I will give you your descendants after you the land of your sojourners and land of Canaan from the everlasting possessions and I will be their God. God has promised unconditional promises to the nation of Israel. He says, man, these are irrevocable promises. I can't take them back. I've, I've given them. They're there. I will not take them back. God, these people will be in their land for all of eternity. Guys, what's interesting about this little insignificant nation of Israel is Satan has been trying to take them out from the time they were born as a nation. Why? Because Satan knows that Israel was God's instrument of salvation, of revelation, of his word. Pharaoh tried to take them out by not only killing the firstborn or killing the, the babies, but also at the Red Sea, tried to kill them all. 
Fast forward some years, Haman, in the time of Esther, Haman tried to wipe out every one of the Jews, and God called Esther for such a time as this. Fast forward, Herod tried to kill the Jewish Messiah by killing every child under the age of two. And from that point on, anti-Semitism has been happening to destroy the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel. Because see, if I were to preach this message 100 years ago, every one of, every one of y'all would say, man, you're crazy. You're absolutely crazy. Because why? Israel was just this insignificant people spread all over the, the world. And so this has got to be spiritual. But then anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, until a man by the name of Adolf Hitler takes millions of Jews and throws them in concentration camp trying to eradicate the Jewish people. And what happens through Adolf Hitler? It would happen in 1945, May 9th, the day after World War II. What happened May 9th, 1945? The sun rose, which means that God is not done with the people of Israel. What happened three years later? Almost to the exact day, Israel became a nation again. Just as Pharaoh drove the Israelites into the promised land, Pharaoh drove them out of Exodus, out of Egypt, drove them in by trying to persecute them. God uses Hitler in all of his wickedness to drive his people back to the promised land. They're in their land. What happens in 1967, the Six-Day War? They expand their land. These little insignificant people grow. And grow. They've got their land back, but anti-Semitism is on the rise. It's on the rise. It's on the rise. I mean, you notice even in our government today, politicians are anti-Semitic. I was talking to my brother today, this, the other day, and we were talking about this, and I said, bro, keep your eyes on Israel because God's not done with them. God's not done with the people of Israel. So the question is, is what does this have to do with Israel, with, with, with Easter, and with you? Everything. Because what we learned 2,000 years ago is that God keeps his promises. What we learn in the future is that God keeps his promises. See, as I was thinking about this week, I've done this illustration before, but I absolutely, I think it's just so appropriate. I, I was thinking about, as I was reading this, I was thinking about the greatest movie ever told. Greatest movie ever told. Rocky IV. Greatest movie, okay? It doesn't get better than Rocky IV, all right? And, and if you watch all the Rocky movies, Rocky I, amazing. Rocky II, that's eh, pretty good. Rocky III, just throw it away. Rocky IV, the greatest, Okay, this is, and I, when, I remember when I first watched Rocky IV, and I'm watching this movie, and, and, and I, I love the Rocky series, so I'm excited, and Rocky's getting ready to retire, he's ready to retire, but then all of a sudden, this man from the Soviet Union, Ivan Drago, comes on the scene, and this is a monster, chiseled, everything, just a stud of a man, just looks like a monster, and he wants to fight Rocky, because he's got to show who's the best. 
But Rocky doesn't want to fight him. He's retired. He has nothing to prove. He's Rocky, okay? But Apollo Creed, he's like, man, I want to fight him because Apollo's retired. He's like, man, Rocky, I got to fight him. I've, I've beaten the best. I've, I've, I've been with the best. I've beaten the best. I've retired more men than Social Security, okay? And Rocky's a man. Don't, don't fight him. You don't have to do this, bro. You don't do this. And, and Rocky and, and Apollo's like, yo, bro, just stand with me one last time. Stand by my side one last time. And so Rocky's like, okay, okay. And so Apollo goes out. They get to the ring. They get this time to fight. And Apollo comes out living in America and everything's coming out and it's pumping you're excited because Apollo's just a showman and then all of a sudden Drago comes out with just a stone face and they get to the match they get to the ring and Drago says you will lose and it's just like oh man this is pretty hardcore and so they start to box and Apollo's just dancing around him and like just kind of showboating around, but tapping him, tapping him, tapping him. And then all of a sudden, Drago makes eye contact with his trainer and then just explodes on Apollo Creed and punches him and pounds him and pounds him and pounds him to the point where the, the, the ring is, the, 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 the bell rings and he gets to the corner. The round's over, gets to the corner, he's bloodied up, and you're just, your heart the whole time is like, man, Apollo, Cole, throw them in the towel, bro. He's got you, he's beating you, and you're just kind of like, your heart's just fluttering. And then Rocky's like, I'm gonna throw in the towel, bro. I'm gonna throw in the towel, Apollo. And he's like, don't throw in the towel, promise me, you'll not throw in the towel. So he goes back into the round, and he starts fighting Drago, but Drago just pounding him and pounding him, and then Duke's off in the corner saying, like, throw in the towel, throw in the towel, and Rocky's get the towel, and he's gonna throw it in, but then uh, Drago destroys. Destroys Apollo, lays on the ground, and he's just convulsing. And, and Rocky runs out to him, and he's holding he's holding Apollo in his arms, and it, it, it scans to uh, Drago, and he's like, "If he dies, he dies." And it's just saying, like, "Man, Apollo's dead." And you're crying. I mean, I'm not cry I don't cry during movies, but I'm crying at this point, and I'm just sad. And then you look at Rocky, and he's looking up at Drago, just the intensity. And you know Rocky. You know what he's going to do. He's going to have to fight Drago. And you're like, don't do it, Rock, because I know this may be it. This may be the last Rocky ever when Rocky dies to Drago. And so he commits to a fight, and, and uh, Adrian's like, why'd you do it, Rock? Why'd you do it? And he's like, yo, Adrian, I got to do what I got to do. No, you don't, Rock. No, you don't. He's like, oh, I got to go. I got to get out of here. And so he leaves. He goes to Russia, the Soviet Union, to train in this bar. He trains in this barn while Drago's in this state-of-the-art facility, and he's getting steroids injected in him. He's jacked. He's pumped. He's running. And then Rocky's just training with, with pitchforks and hay. And you're like, man, Rocky, you can't beat him. And then all of a sudden, that dun 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 And you just get started. Maybe, maybe, like, you, maybe he might win because the Rocky music's playing, so that might mean something. But then they get to the match. And they get to the match, and Drago's like, I must break you. And it's just like, like you're just kind of, your heart is just fluttering. You're afraid. You're terrified. And then they get to the rock, they fight, and then Drago's pounding on Rocky, ring after ring, ring just, just bell after bell after bell, uh, period after period. And then Rocky's just getting bloodied. He's getting beat. He's getting destroyed. He can't do it. But then after round after round after round after round, finally Rocky starts punching him back and he cuts Drago. And then he's like, he is human. He bleeds. And then Drago's like, he's made of iron. And it's just like, yes, he is made of iron. He's Rocky, okay? He's going to win. He's going to win. And they go, Rocky, Drago, Rocky, Drago. And then eventually Rocky destroys, punches Drago. He's out. One, two, three, ten. And he goes, if I can change, you can change. We all can change. And it's just like this moment where you're stoked and you're excited and you're rejoicing. 
But then you watch it again. And here's the thing. It is still the greatest movie ever made. Well, yeah, you cry when Apollo dies. But then when Rocky looks at Drago like he's going to fight him again, you don't have anxiety. You don't have fear. You don't have worry. You don't have any of that. Why? Because you know that he's going to win. And so you're longing, you're waiting for Rocky to take down Drago. Guys, the cross, the resurrection, and their future are declarations that God wins. He wins. And so we don't stand in fear. The battle is over. The cross, the resurrection was a declaration to you, to me, to the principalities, to angels, to demons, to Satan himself, that the victory has been won. And because the victory was won 2,000 years ago, and because God keeps his promises in the future with the nation of Israel, you can now walk today in boldness and in courage and in peace, knowing that he sits on his throne and the victory is done, that God keeps his promises. Guys, we know how this ends. We know how this ends, which means that no matter what is going on in your world, no matter who is president, who's going to be president, no matter what your bank account looks like, no matter what your family looks like, no matter what's happening in the world, no matter it's the swine flu, the black plague, or the coronavirus, no matter what is going on in our world, we know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked out of the grave, and we know that in the future, that God keeps his promise with Israel, which means that today, we can stand on the promises of God. That today we can stand that God's promises are true. That he will not leave you or forsake you. That he who began a good work in you will complete it. That you are his possession. That you were bought with the price. That he loves you. And that he has you. And he keeps you. You can trust in the promises of God. That's the declaration of God's handling with Israel and what Christ did 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday. Trust in God. This morning, I I told you last week that we were going to take communion together. And so I hope that you did get bread. I'm going to give you time if you haven't got it yet. I hope you did get bread. And uh, whether it's a hamburger bun, a hot dog, it doesn't matter. It's just just what we're, 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 we're celebrating this morning. And it's the 2,000 years ago, the night before Jesus died, he took his disciples and he took them in the upper room and he took the bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body, it's broken for you. This is my body. Take and eat and do this as often as you gather. Remember me. Remember what I've done here. Remember who I am. Remember what I've accomplished and remember my victory. But likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood poured out for you, shed for you, broken for you. Take and drink this and remember me. As often as you gather, take and drink and remember me. So let's pray. Father, We praise you for the victory. 
We praise you for your victory. That we do not walk in fear. That we don't have to walk in anxiety anymore. We don't have to walk in worry anymore, but we walk with the knowledge that the victory has been won and that you are a God who keeps his promises. That your word is steadfast, that your word is true. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you for this remembrance of you as our covenant representative, that we choose you. That even though we were born into Adam, Lord, we have chosen the new Adam, the one who did not fall into temptation, the one who did not sin, the one who perfected or satisfied and fulfilled the law, the one who came and took our sins upon the cross, the one who became the perfect sacrifice, the one who became the perfect lamb, and the one who three days later walked out of the grave declaring to the world that the victory has been won. We praise you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.